You know, um, they asked me to speak today, and I, I always feel a bit nervous. I always, it's like a birthing process. I'm a bit in labor, and then once I get up here, I seem to be okay. Uh, nervous on the one hand, but on the other hand, I always count it a great privilege and honor to be able to, to speak from the Bible and to, uh, to impart the Bible, to, to teach the Bible. I, I just think it's a great privilege because... Uh, to me and, and to us at Riverside, the Bible really is God's word. It's inspired by God and it's, it's, uh, it reveals God's character and his nature and his heart. But it also is a very practical book in terms of how we might live life. So we can, we can search the scriptures and we can be doers of the word, actually. We're not just hearers, just listening, but we can actually put it into practice and, uh, and thereby grow to be more like Jesus. And so that's a great privilege that we have. The series here that we're speaking from is called These Are the Days of Our Lives. And it's really looking at the Christian life and discipleship from the point of view of the different generations. So I'm going to uh, focus on one little passage of scripture and maybe hint at a few other scriptures. But if you have a Bible, turn with me please to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And I'll just read this, uh, make a few comments, and then unpack it a bit further later. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 12, verse, start at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." So that you will, and I hope what I say today will encourage you not to grow weary and lose heart. So these are the days of our lives. So we've had, I think, uh, most of the generations speaking, they roll out the old man at this point in time. Uh, my name is Harry. I was born in 1951, so I'm 66 years old. So I speak from a 66-year-old perspective. Those are the lenses I see through. And uh, sociologists who study generations who are, who are knowledgeable about these things, they, they categorize the generations as such. They talk about the silent generation, which, was the, which were those born between the, in the 1920s and 40s. They talk about the baby boomers, of which I'm one, born between the 1940s and 60s. They talk about Generation X, born between the 1960s and the 1980s. And then they talk about the millennials. You hear a lot about the millennials. Uh, born between the 1980s and, and, the, and, the, and the noughts, the 2000s. And then uh, the current generation, according to sociologi sociologists, is, what do you think it is? Sorry? Post-millennial or Generation Z. Now that really knocks it on the head because where do you go after generation, maybe you go back to Generation A or something. But Generation Z, the post-millennials, are those born in the 2000s, and, and there's not an end point to that yet. But uh, the term baby boomer, of which I'm, a, I'm one, is used to describe a person that was born roughly between 1946 and 1964. 
And following World War II, both in North America and in Europe, uh, they experienced an unusual spike in birth rates with troops returning home from war, with uh, changes in lifestyle, better health care. And this generation, this phenomenon, is commonly known as the baby boomers. So that's, that's what I, I'm a baby boomer. How many baby boomers are here, just out of curiosity? Oh, very good. We're almost in the ascendancy, I would say. <laughs> so we are baby boomers. And uh, as a follower of Jesus, every decade has, has its unique challenges and opportunities. And uh, I'll just read you something that's from a great book I read a number of years ago by Gordon MacDonald called A Resilient Life. And, and this is what he says about the different decades of life. He says, in each decade of life, as the questions we are asking change, so does the content and form of our spiritual interests. The Bible reader discerns new insights from the familiar Bible stories or teachings. The themes of prayer also change. The dangers and temptations inherent in the spiritual journey are modified. And in each decade of life, new decisions leading to deepening commitment present themselves. And he's saying that in each generation, the questions that we ask of ourselves and of God are different. So, for instance, he, this is his, his proposition, that the questions of 20-somethings, how many 20-somethings are here? These are the kinds of questions you might ask. They, they, it's about clarifying identity at that age. So it's the idea of what kind of man or woman am I becoming? What will I do with my life? It's like the, the world is your oyster. What, you, all of that is spread before you. The questions of 30-somethings are about the longer-range responsibilities of life. 30-somethings, raise your hands. So we've got a few. And those, these are questions like, uh, how do I prioritize the demands being made on my life? How far can I go in fulfilling my sense of purpose? Uh, you know, what, what does my spiritual life look like? Do I have time for one? Questions like that if you're in your 30s. Shall I stop there or shall I keep going? <laughs> Questions of 40-somethings are about the complexities of life. 40-somethings? Raise your hands. So it's uh, questions you begin to look back. You know, that's the age of kind of midlife crisis. You look back, what, what was, who was I as a child? What things from, from back in those days informed me now? Why, why are limitations beginning to outnumber options? Why do I seem to face so many uncertainties? Often that's a time of, of wrestling with faith, a time of doubt when you're in your, your 40s, the complexities of life. Questions of 50-somethings are about life's changes. Why is time moving so fast? Any 50-somethings here? Why is time moving so fast? Why is my body becoming unreliable? How do I deal with my failures and my successes? And what do I do with my doubts and fears? Those are 50-somethings. Now, 60-somethings, of which I, I'm in this category, uh, are about mortality. Mortality, when you're in your 60s. When do I stop doing the things that have always defined me? Why am I curious about who is listed in the obituary columns? <laughs> You know, when I was in my 20s, I never read obituaries. I read obituaries now because I'm curious as to how people live life and, and what, what kind of legacy do they leave. And I'm, I'm in, those are the, the kinds of things I'm interested in. Do I have enough time to do all the things I've dreamed about? 
You know, time is running out when you're in your 60s and you still have a bucket list you're working through, but you realize you, you might not quite do everything on the bucket list. And then questions of 70-somethings and 80-somethings are about significance. Does anyone realize or even care who I once was? Is anybody that age here? Do we have any? Okay, you don't need, I'm not naming and shaming here, but just, uh, just to say, does anyone realize or even care who I once was? Is my story important to anyone? How much of my life can I still control? Is there anything I can still contribute? So as, as life diminishes in the, in the latter stages of life, these are the kinds of, the, the questions we ask are very different. And, and the answers we get from God are very different. So I want to look at things from a, uh, from a, uh, a baby boomer perspective. The, this, that's the, uh, the times of our lives. That's the stage I'll be looking at this morning. For those of us in our 50s, 60s, and 70s, we, face, we have unique opportunities and challenges. Jimmy Carter, the former president of the United States, said this. He said, there are two periods in our lives when we have exceptional freedom. At college age and when we begin our retirement years. At those times, we have relatively few distractions and obligations. It's almost like life comes full circle and you're faced with great opportunities at that age. Gordon MacDonald makes a, makes a further point. He says the greatest contributions God has for us to make will happen in the second half of life. I'll say that again. The greatest contributions that God has for us to make will happen in the second half of life. We think that when you're full of youth and zeal and enthusiasm and energy, that that's, that's where we make our mark. But actually, if you look at it historically, and look at figures in the Bible and history, you'll see that the, the greatest contributions are often in the second half of life. A few examples from the Bible. Abraham, who at the age of 75 was, was called by God to leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to a country that I will show you. So he was, he was pulled out of retirement, as it were, you know, settling down and enjoying the rest of his life. He was pulled out of that and pulled out to, to, to go forth in faith and to, to count all of that as nothing to pursue what God had for him. Moses in Exodus, uh, at 80 years old, God called him to lead his people out of Egypt. Caleb, who was one of the original spies that Moses sent into the promised land with Joshua at the age of 40. At the age of 85, he looks back on his life and he says, I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. Uh, I am just as vigorous to go out to battle then or, or now as I was then. That's at 85 years old. He's saying, Lord, send me, use me. One of the great scriptures that somebody gave to me uh, before we went to Uganda about a little over four years ago was uh, Malcolm Weaver gave me a, a verse of scripture I had obviously read but ne it had never, uh, never resonated with me. It never had been called to my attention. And it's this verse out of uh, Psalm 92, verse 13 and 14. And this has become a North Star verse for me. This has become a verse that has informed my life the last four years. He says, the righteous will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Can somebody say amen to that? 
They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Or as the authorized version says, I like this, they will, they will stay fat and flourishing. I like the idea of you know, being fat and flourishing. But that verse has informed me because you know, I'm faced with retirement. I'm faced with uh, no longer being in paid employment. So what do, what do we do with our lives at this stage of life? We're, we're, we've got our health, we've got a, a, uh, an empty nest, as it were, and what do we do with our lives? How do we face the challenges that come before us? Uh, those are big questions. There's another example in the Bible of the prophet Eli, who the first half of his life was one of, of, of failings and failure. He had a failed marriage, he had children that went astray quite horribly, he had missed opportunities, poor priorities, just failure after failure. And yet, in the later years of his life, God called him to be a mentor and a spiritual father to Samuel, who went on to become one of the greatest prophets in Israel. So God somehow, even though the first half of his life was marked by failure, God is the God of the second chance. And he, didn't, he wasn't resigned to his failures, but God actually... Uh, renewed him in a way that made him effective in the second half of life. So let us be encouraged by that, that you may look back on your life and, and see missed opportunities and see failings, but at any stage of life, God can over, overrule those things and call us to something very special and make us fruitful and cause us to be fresh and green. Any stage of life that can happen. So I want to look at this verse here in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, refer back to that. Uh, for me, this passage is about running the race with resilience in the midst of life's challenges and disappointments and crises of faith, because life is a journey. Life is a journey. There's a beginning point and an ending point, and, and the analogy that Scripture is using here is that life is a race, not a sprint, not, not a Usain Bolt 100-meter dash, but it's a marathon. It's a Mo Farrow race. It's a long race. And all that's required with that, there are hints of it in this passage. The first point is just that he says here that since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, speaks of the bigger picture, a bigger perspective. And, you know, we, we think our life is so important. We, we see our 70 plus years on this earth as, as all and everything. And yet in the vastness of creation, the vastness of space and the solar system, and certainly the vastness of God, it is a vapor. It is a drop in the bucket. Sometimes we need to see the bigger picture because we get so mired in the everyday. The, 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 uh, the molehills become mountains in our lives because our, our gaze is down here rather than on the bigger picture. There's an invisible realm, the spiritual realm, that says here that, that there, we are surrounded by a cloud of great witnesses. It's referring to those in, in chapter 11, the previous chapter, all the great men and women of faith, the pioneers who blazed away for us, who've left a spiritual legacy for us. But it also includes those from the, from the time that that was written till now. It includes people like Hudson Taylor, the great missionary pioneer. It includes Mother Teresa. It might include your grandmother. It might include your brother, your sister, your friend who has gone on to be with the Lord. They are all part of that company who are cheering us on, encouraging us from that invisible realm. And again, that's the bigger picture, that we're part of something that is much bigger and greater than we are. 
Let me say that again. We are part of something in this Christian life that is much bigger and greater than we are. And, uh, and, and that perspective lifts our eyes to see that. You know, we can't see the invisible, but we can know deep in our hearts that we're surrounded, even in this room, you know, by these men and great men, men and women. We stand on the shoulders of giants this morning. Each one of us does. The second point is it tells us to be vigilant with sin and compromise. It says, throw off in this passage everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That means any activity that handicaps us. You know, th- throw it off. It's, it's that analogy of throwing off a cloak, throwing off a coat, traveling light, stripping down to the essentials. Uh, don't, don't, uh, don't fester sin, but deal with sin in our lives. Be ruthless with it. Deal with compromise in our lives. Be ruthless with it. Uh, you know, Paul says, he describes that battle that we all face. He says that in Romans, he says, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. It's that tension within us of sin. That, you know, even in our best interests, we, we, we fail so often because we're so flawed, we're so fallible, we're so fallen. And, but then Paul says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ because there in him, we receive love and acceptance and forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful that, that, that we're not a prisoner to our sin, but actually we, we, we receive God's love, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness, and then having received it, we can become channels of that to other people. What a great, great story that is. So we're to be vigilant with sin and not compromise. You know, the, the picture of this running the race in, in, the, in the early Olympics in ancient Greece um, in, in the running races, they actually run naked. You know, they, they just, they'd throw off everything that hinders because they would travel light. They would travel just with the essential of what they need to run the race. And, uh, and we are also to travel light in that sense. And then he goes on here to say, run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. That's in spite of difficulties, in spite of obstacles and discouragements. We're to be run with persistence and resilience so that we finish well. You know, it is a long distance race. We don't want to be knocked off into some cul-de-sac and, or just finish the race broken. I want to run with that long-term perspective. I want to run with that bigger picture perspective so that I finish and finish well in life. And then he says here, perhaps most importantly, he says, fix your eyes upon Jesus so that you don't grow weary or lose heart. I've seen people, many friends, not many, but I've seen friends over my life who I would term as casualties, that somehow in the race they've been hit with disappointments, they've been hit with discouragements, maybe they've been hurt by church, whatever it's been, but it's somehow sidetracked them, and they've nearly lost their faith through it. They've they, they, they'll say something like, yeah, I, Jesus is okay, but forget the church because they've been so wounded. And there's a lot of pe- wounded people out there who have taken knocks in this race and, uh, because it, it's, a, it's a grueling race and it's a race which really requires focus upon Jesus so that we don't grow weary. There's a wonderful scripture in Corinthians 
that's been very meaningful to me as well that says this. It's a similar idea of, of not losing heart, not growing weary. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I know that to be true. Every morning when I wake up and look in the mirror, I see, oh, ah, ooh, wasting away. But inwardly, I want renewal. I want to be changed. I want to continue to grow in God. I don't want to stand still. I want renewal in my life and, and, and restoration. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Again, that unseen realm. We fix our eyes upon Jesus. We don't physically see Jesus. I don't think any of us do. Though people have had experiences of quite profound experiences of encounters with, with the person of Jesus. I haven't, other than the fact that I fix my eyes upon Jesus. Even though it's the invisible realm, I know that I know that I know that he is there, that his love and acceptance and forgiveness is there and has been there all my life for me. So that's a reality. It is a grueling race. There's many challenges and surprises along the way requiring endurance, requiring resilience. And the longer you live, and I say this as a baby boomer, the longer you live, the, the more you see of these challenges and complexities and paradoxes. You see more and more of it as, as, you, uh, as you get older because your experience of life becomes bigger and broader. And in a marathon race, if anybody has run a marathon, you'll know that at a certain point in the race, in this long-distance race, about the 1920-mile mark, you hit something called what? The wall. Has, has anybody run a marathon and experienced that? You hit the wall. And the wall is a time when your resources are depleted and your body is saying, stop, I can go no further. And it's a, it's a time of great psychological challenge in the race where you have to somehow overcome that to keep in the race, to keep going. And I, I, I say to you that the Christian life, you will at various times, whether you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, 60s or 70s, you will hit at various times in your life the wall. You will hit times of hardship, of disappointment, times of great temptation, times of, of a crisis of faith, of a loss of passion, of woundedness, of times where you are, in fact, weary in well-doing. You're just tired from it all. And I'll tell you from my experience, in, in, we, we went to, uh, we were working with Youth with a Mission in Uganda off and on for three years, uh, from 2012 to 2000. Uh, 15 or 16, I forget the dates, but, but that was, uh, our lives were invested into that, uh, into that place, into that nation, into those people for a three-year period intensively. And then we came back to the UK, and life seemed very tame to me coming back here. There weren't the daily challenges, the daily unpredictable things that just happen in a, in a different cultural context. Uh, particularly in a developing country, life does not run smoothly. It just, there, everything is changing and evolving all the time, and you have to adapt to that. So every day, there's a, kind of an adrenaline of getting through the day because you wake up not knowing what the next challenge will be that day. 
And I, I relished it. I loved the idea of waking up thinking, great, this day I've got this, this, and this planned, but how will it turn out, actually? It'll be very different than what I think it looks like. So we returned, and, and I found myself, uh, I kind of went through a spiritual uh, spiral downward because I realized I came to a place where I felt bored. I felt bored with myself. I felt bored with the church. I felt, dare I say, bored with God. It just was, it was just so sameish to me. And, and I, I, I needed to get out of that place because I was, I was in danger of giving up my race, the race marked out for me that God had called me to, to run with perseverance. It was a danger that I was, I was going to be, just give up, throw in the towel. But at that point, I sought out a help from a spiritual mentor, a person who has coached me over the years, who helped me turn a corner, thankfully. And at times like that, we need others to draw alongside of us to encourage us and help us. And I want to say to you that when you hit the wall like that, which you will do at some point, whatever the challenge is that, that causes you to, to feel depleted and feel like giving up at that point, that's a time to turn to somebody for help, to turn to a brother or sister in Christ and say, this is where I'm at. Will you pray for me? Will you stand with me? Will you help me through this rough patch? And that's where the body, the church, the body of Christ functions very well is when we support one another in that way, where we, we truly are a community, a body together. So I want to encourage you to do that. Paul faced his own challenges. In the book of Acts, he says, he's, he's speaking of his life, he says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Talk about hitting a wall prison, hardships, every city, the Holy Spirit warned him. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Somehow, in, that, in those low places, those desperate places, he was able to lift his eyes to Jesus and to the calling on his life, the task that Jesus had given him and was with him in. So, to finish up, how do we not lose heart when tempted to give up the race? I want to propose a few thoughts here from Scripture. What resources in God do you find when you face challenges or hit rock bottom? What, what challenges do you find? Is there a bottom line from which you rebound? And I want to talk about the bottom line, the bedrock of your faith here this morning. In Scripture, there are a number of bottom lines which are all rooted in the character of God. They have to do with the integrity of God, who God is. And our bottom line is rooted in that, is rooted in the integrity of God and His character. So I want to suggest four bottom lines for me. And this is not a definitive list. You may have different bottom lines that you, that you resort to in Scripture. But the bottom lines for me are these four things. The first one is a deep, unshakable faith in who Jesus is. And the reference in Scripture for this is in John chapter 6, where Jesus had just been talking to his disciples very cryptically about eating his body and drinking his blood. 
Oh, what is he talking about? And the disciples would gather around and Jesus was saying things like, uh, like uh, and, uh, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And uh, things like uh, who, the one who feeds on me will live forever. And this puzzled the disciples. And it says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him because of these hard sayings of Jesus. Can you imagine? These are people who have been with Jesus, physically with Jesus. They have seen the miracles. They have seen everything. They've seen him feeding the 5,000, turning water into wine, healing people. And because of what he said, not because of what he did, because of what he, something he said, it says they turned away and no longer followed him. And then Jesus said this. He says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And Simon Peter answered him. And for me, this is a bottom line verse. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And there are times in your life where that is the only thread you have to hold on to. Lord, I don't know what's happening around, with, around me. It just seems everything is caving in. But I know this one thing, that where would I go? To whom would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And that is a bottom line. That is bedrock. And, and that it has to do with, with this unshakable faith of who Jesus is. The second one is a deep, unshakable awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence. And this comes from Psalm 139, which says this. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? So you may feel like running away, running away from the race, running away from God. But he's saying, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And it just speaks of the fact that, that we can never escape the presence of God. Once you, have, once you have yielded, surrendered your life to be a follower of Jesus and been filled with his spirit, that is the, the, the seal of your salvation, and it will not leave you. The presence of God, you might wander away, but you know, Jesus wanders with you. <laughs> he goes places that, that you would not want to be seen with him. Jesus is right there with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. God's presence is with you. And, and that is tremendous. Jesus promised that he would never leave us or forsake us, but he would be with us always unto the end of the age. So we have that deep assurance that is a bottom line that, that, uh, that we cannot flee from God's presence. God's presence is with us even in the depths. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me, says Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. And that's a tremendous confidence. The third thing is a deep, unshakable experience of God's love. And uh, this, is a, this is one that I have to wrestle with at times. It's easy for me to believe that God loves other people. It's less easy for me to believe that God really loves me for who I am. I, I can believe that, uh, that God loves Martin very easily. 
and I can tell him. But do I really know that I know that I know that God loves me? And yet the encouragement in Romans chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, uh, he says basically he says, nothing and nobody can separate us from the love of Christ. And that is, is bedrock. That is a bottom line. It has to do with God's love knowing that and experiencing uh, God's love in that way. And then the last point is a deep, unshakable confidence in God's faithfulness that he will complete the work he has begun in us. We have a confidence, it says in Philippians 1.6, of this, of this thing that he who has begun a good work in, in you will carry it on to completion. That God doesn't leave you half finished, leave you on the, the side of the track not finishing the race. God is with you to the end of the race. And he will complete the work he has begun in you. And for me, that is a bottom line. God, wherever I'm at, you know, spiritually or emotionally or whatever confusion I'm in or doubt I'm in, I know that this isn't the end of the matter because you are with me. Your love is with me. I know who Jesus is. He walks with me. And you will complete the work you've begun in my life. And those are bottom line verses for me at this stage of life. Now, you may have bottom line verses as well. And, and, and assurances from God and promises from God that you hold on to when you're in the, the, the day of trouble. And, I, and, and it'd be great to share those things amongst ourselves and say, well, what are your bottom line scriptures? Where, where does God, you know, what is, what is the, the non-negotiable bedrock of your life? Does it have to do with who Jesus is? Does it have to do with God's presence? Does it have to do with God's love? Does it have to do with the fact that God is faithful to complete what he's begun in you? I want to finish with a story, and it's a story of a man named E. Stanley Jones, who was a 20th century Methodist missionary and theologian who spent more than 50 years of his life in India sometimes considered the Billy Graham of India, he was widely respected and was a close friend of Mahatma Gandhi and a confidant of Franklin Roosevelt. For his reconciliation work in Asia and Africa, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And at the age of 87, after a lifetime of missionary service which saw him speak to millions of people, he suffered a debilitating stroke which left him without speech or physical mobility, but not impaired mentally or spiritually. In his final months before he died, he managed to mutter through his paralyzed lips into a tape recorder the manuscript of his final book called The Divine Yes. And it was his final declaration of faithfulness to Jesus. In it, he wrote this, and I've finished with these words. There are scars on my faith, but underneath those scars there are no doubts. Christ has me with the consent of all my being and with the cooperation of all my life. The song I sing is a lit song, not the temporary exuberance of youth that often fades when middle and old age sets in with their disillusionment and cynicism. No, I'm 88 and I'm more excited today about being a Christian than I was at 18 when I first put my feet upon the path. And, you know, that's a great, wouldn't that be great at the end of your race to be able to say, I'm more excited about Jesus today. I'm more, more full of 
uh, of just Jesus and, and love for Jesus today than I was when I first set foot on this race. And what a great testimony. And, and that's, the test, that's the legacy and the testimony I long for in my own life. And uh, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that it is a revelation of God's heart to us, but it's also a, uh, something very practical to us, Lord, in terms of how we live our lives. And I pray, Lord, as we think of our stage of life, whatever generation we are, whether we're baby boomers or Generation X or Generation Z, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that, uh, that, that we would, we would uh, have these bottom lines in our own lives, Lord, these assurances that we know that we know that we know of who Jesus is. We know that we know that we know that your love is, is our experience, that we know your presence, that we know your faithfulness, Lord. Father, help us to live in the good of it. In Jesus' name, amen.